Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Hi, and welcome to The Long View. I'm Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning for Morningstar. And I'm Jeff Patak, Chief Ratings Officer for Morningstar Research Services. Our guest on the podcast today is Nick Majuli. Nick is the author of a new book called Just Keep Buying, Proven Ways to Save Money and Build Your Wealth. He is also the author of ofdollarsanddata.com, which is a blog focused on the intersection of data and personal finance. In addition, Nick is Chief Operating Officer and Data Scientist for Ritholtz Wealth Management. He graduated from Stanford University with a degree in economics. Nick, welcome to The Long View. Thanks, Christine, for having me on. Well, we're thrilled to have you here. So you're Chief Operating Officer and Data Scientist for Ritholtz Wealth Management. Most people probably have some familiarity with what a Chief Operating Officer does, but what does the role of Data Scientist entail? It's interesting because um, not many RIAs and registered investment advisors have data scientists at their firms because it's just such a new thing, you know, to just data science in general. But some of the stuff I was doing early on for the firm is just basically answering business questions with data. We call this like business intelligence. Now, data science is a very broad field. It goes from everything from like data infrastructure and how you, you know, build out servers and all that, machine learning to just, you know, even simple charts, graphs, things like that, just to answer questions. I mean, ultimately what you're trying to do is, you know, organize information and answer questions to the best of your ability. So that means I'm trying to figure out, okay, what type of leads are most likely to convert into prospects, right? Which then could become clients, right? So there might be certain factors that we know about the leads. And I've done like certain types of analyses, created models to like look into that or what's going on with attrition, what's going on with how our clients are investing money, all sorts of questions that we can look in and see, you know, and that's kind of the just getting aggregated statistics, all sorts of stuff, right? It's just, it's any sort of business question they have. And it's always evolving. Like we may look into something and they'll say, yeah, actually, we don't need to look into that anymore. One of the things I think as you may or may not know, like our firm does, you know, um, content marketing. So like I have a blog, Josh Brown has a blog, he's on CNBC, they have a YouTube channel, with 100,000 subscribers, there's podcasts, there's so much stuff we do. And so I'm also analyzing content data to see like, oh, where viewers coming from, how's that, you know, leading to leads, and all sorts of stuff like that, right? So there's a lot of things where, um, you know, we're just looking at information, trying to answer best we can. So you just referenced the fact that many of the people, many of your colleagues at Ritholtz had public personas, you're blogging, you're appearing in the media and so on. How do you balance that part of your job with serving client needs? I mean, most of my week to week is like I'm you know, working on stuff and operations in the firm. Like I still have a full-time job. You know, that's why I'm only putting out like one blog post a week. I don't have time to be doing, you know, podcasts, like have a podcast where I'm creating the content every week or, you know, TV appearances, things like that. I don't have that time yet, um, given all the operational things we're trying to do because we're growing so much. So for me, like most of my time is being spent on that. And that's why I still consider like, you know, my blog, Dollars and Data, the book, all that. That's like a side hustle I consider, right? Even though it is kind of related to my main job, um, it's kind of, it's a secondary thing. The firm does come first and I have to spend a lot of time there. So we want to talk about your book, Just Keep Buying. A key thesis of the book and really a theme that runs throughout your work is the virtue of saving as much as you can in the early years of the investing journey. Most people listening are no doubt familiar with this concept of getting started as soon as you can. But can you provide an example, uh, perhaps with data, to illustrate why you think this is so important? 
Yeah. So I think this is an important idea for two reasons. I mean, first, I mean, all of your listeners are already going to know you've heard this you know, a thousand times before compounding, right? You know, compounding returns, right? So that's one reason is just the mathematics of compounding, right? Earlier payments are going to grow to larger amounts than later payments, all else equal, right? Assuming like a similar growth rate over time. Um, that's pretty obvious at this point for a lot of your listeners. The thing which may be a little less obvious, the second point is that this is a behavioral point. It's that compounding is easy, but saving money is hard. And what do I mean by that? It's much harder to save money and, you know, raise your income and change spending, whatever you're doing to save money, than it is to compound your money. Because literally compounding, you just put it in the market and wait, obviously. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that there's going to be times when the market crashes and you're not going to want to, you're going to second guess yourself and things like that. But generally, it's much easier to compound money than it is to save money, in my opinion, right? The market does the compounding for you. So when you combine those two points together, like the compounding, you know, grows money more over the earlier you do it. And then the second point, which is the behavioral point that like, oh, it's much easier to compound money earlier than it's nicer to just like, save earlier, right? That's just like a very obvious thing. So from on a behavioral thing, it's easier. And then mathematically, it's easier as well. And the Example I like to give, if you were to save the same amount of money every year, it doesn't matter whether you're doing $1,000 a year or $10,000 a year and invest that every single year for 40 years, um, earning, let's just say 7% a year. After 40 years has passed, half of your portfolio value of the final value came from the first 10 year of contributions. So think about that. The first 10 years is half of your final product and the next 30 years is the other half. So that's why saving early is so important because if you just, you know, you save 10 grand a year, compounding at 7% a year for 40 years, whatever that grows to in the end, it's probably like a million something. Those first 10 years, like that's half of the final value. And so like people don't realize, but that's why saving early is so important. I think that example really illustrates it. In the book, you discuss what you call the biggest lie in personal finance. What is it, the biggest lie in personal finance? I think the biggest lie in personal finance is that you can grow your wealth by just cutting your spending. You can just cut your way to you know, having a lot of wealth. And I think generally, if you look at the data, it's just not true. Like, yes, of course, if you're, if you're someone who has high income, you have very, very high spending, then it's very possible for you to do that. But most people just, they don't have high enough income to grow their wealth. So it's really, it's not their spending, it's the issue. I was looking at data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and like people in the bottom 20% or the, the bottom 40% of households, just there's not much to cut. Like I, I, sh- I actually show the numbers in the book. I'm like, okay, you're spending, you know, $800 a month on rent or $900 a month on rent. Like how much are you going to cut there, right? It's like, there's not enough, you know, wiggle room for them to grow their wealth just based on cutting spending. And so I think it's a lie because generally it doesn't work for most people most of the time, which means the solution is to grow your income. Now I'm not saying growing your income is easy, but that's the path out. And if you actually look at the data as well, savings rate and income are highly correlated, positively correlated. Like people generally with more income save more. And that's true as you go further and further up the income spectrum, right? So that one piece of information alone kind of like proves my point. And of course, you're gonna be like, well, I know a rich guy that doesn't save anything. It's like, yeah, those are the exceptions. Like, oh, I know a celebrity that blew all their wealth, right? Like you can name like five or 10 celebrities that went bankrupt. Uh, I can name every other celebrity that didn't right? That's the difference, right? It's very seductive to use these like stories and examples of people that went broke. And I'm not saying they don't exist, but at the same time, like I have so many more examples on the other side where like, yeah, you know, like I don't know anything about like, for example, The Rock or Oprah or any of these people and and their money mindset and how they spend money. But I do know that they all have high incomes, right? That's the one thing I know with certainty, right? And so I think that's kind of the main point I'm giving up there. 
So how about some ideas for growing income? What are the key things that you talk about in the book with respect to that? Yeah, so I would put these into two different camps. Like there's the like, okay, your main hustle thing, and then there's side hustle stuff. So just in main hustle, which is like, you know, climbing the corporate ladder. I'm one of those people that I'm not against like nine to fives, you know, you shouldn't do that. You should kind of be your own boss and all that. And I'm not I'm not against the people that do that either. But I think, you know, a lot of people, a lot of millionaires out there got there by, you know, working a nine to five job and getting experience and doing that. We all don't need to be entrepreneurs and run our own businesses and do that. So I think there's a lot to just building your skills and becoming valuable in a company and kind of, you know, slowly making more money over time. I think that's definitely a way to do it. The other options, which are all like side hustles, is like, you know, okay, do you sell your time and expertise? That's one idea. Do you sell a product or service of some sort? You know, something you can, you know, that's not always linked to your time, but maybe it's linked to your time initially. But over time, as you get more efficient at it, you can sell it for less time. Uh, There's the idea of teaching people, like doing online courses, things like that. I've seen people make some good money making a product in that way. I think those are kind of the biggest ones you can look at. And then the last way to grow your income, I say, in addition, is like that's, um, you know, buying income producing assets, right? So the whole idea of creating these income streams, and those are great and all, but you ultimately want to take that money from those income streams and invest it in income producing assets that start paying you more. So that's, you know, things that will pay you dividends or any sort of, you know, cash returns, cash yields, things like that. So I think ultimately, like the short run ways to increase income are all kind of based on your labor and work you do, whether it's selling products, teaching, things like that, selling your time. But in the long run to raise your income, um, you're going to have to invest in income producing assets. And I think that's the ultimate way to build wealth. I wanted to go back to something you mentioned before. It was that first 10 years example, it accounting Mm for 50% essentially of what's ultimately built up over time. And as we know, sometimes life and circumstances can intrude and people aren't able to put away savings to the extent that they might want. And so listening to that, they might conclude, oh, my God, I'm screwed. You know, I, I wasn't able to tuck money away my first 10 years. So what are the implications for, say, my longer term financial and retirement security? What do you say to try to assuage concerns like those? I mean, it's not that you're screwed. I mean, it depends on, there's so many factors here. Like I would need a little bit more information to kind of get it. Like if you have $0 in retirement savings and you're 60 years old, like I can't make that math work. Like unless you have some really high paying job, that's going to, you can save enough in like five years or something. You plan to retire at 65 or 67. Then yeah, those people, it's going to be very tough. Like I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Like for certain people, it is going to be very difficult to do things like that. You may just have to lower your lifestyle. But that's not true for everyone. If you don't, oh, I didn't save in the first 10 years doesn't mean you're screwed. It just means you have to save more in the intervening years or maybe just work a little longer. I mean, all else equal. Assume you want that same lifestyle, right? So I don't think it's like, oh, they're screwed. Like there's still time, right? There's still time for people to do things. And I think the thing I would focus on then is not worrying about, oh, well, I didn't have as much money invested. It's like, okay, what can I do to raise my income? Maybe this is like a gift. I realized I... I wasn't optimal in the past, but what can I do now to improve my future? And like maybe the fact that you didn't save then is now causing you to like work harder or think more about how to do this in such a way such that you raise your income. So it's not always a bad thing that you made mistakes. Like I made a bunch of mistakes, right? And if I hadn't made those mistakes, I wouldn't be behaving better now. So I don't think we need to always look at mistakes as like it's a a massive failure because we learn from that. And that's my make you better in the future. So I think that's the thing to focus on is how can you be better instead of beating yourself up for messing up? You've said that we begin our lives as growth stocks, but end our lives as value stocks. Can you talk about that? 
Yeah, so that's uh, that's, an, that's a funny uh, funny little story. So basically, there's some data that showed that you know early on in people's lives, you know, when you're in, let's say you're in your early 20s, you have a lot of expectations for yourself. You kind of imagine how your life's going to be in the future, in your 30s, 40s, etc. And a lot of people have very high expectations, but unfortunately, a lot of these expectations don't always get met. So I say early in our lives, you know. Or like growth stocks because we believe in the, the you know like a growth stock like there's a lot of uh, future belief in you know high growth high earnings we have a lot of expectations and a lot of times growth stocks can do very well but usually at some point if that growth stops happening if the expectations if we don't meet those very high expectations those prices generally fall and so what happens there's like a revaluing you kind of learn like okay actually all these crazy things that i thought were going to happen didn't necessarily happen however we end up overcorrecting as we get older so we start to beat down ourselves so much that we think like, oh, things aren't going to get better. And that's kind of like this like midlife crisis thing people hear about where like, you know, they don't feel as good about their lives and stuff. And so then we become like what I call value stocks because over time, as we start to beat ourselves down, we think life's not going to be as good in the future. But then we're surprised. There's like some positive surprises. And that's kind of how value stocks tend to, you know, perform. It's like, yes, they're beaten down badly, but there are times when like there's these positive upside surprises that end up allowing them to generate some return, right? So that's the history of how value is beaten growth. I, mean, I don't know if that's going to be true in the future, but you can think of that thinking and apply it to your life. And you'll see there's a lot of people like when you're 22 years old, you know, the world is your oyster, so to speak, right? You can become anything, right? But as you get older, some of those dreams start to, you know, you realize you can't do this, you can't do that, or maybe that pass on open for you. And so you kind of just, you think of your life that way. That's kind of why I use that story. And it was, it was my story as well. Like I thought by the time I was 30, I, I wanted to have, you know, half a million dollars by the time I was 30. Because like Buffett had a million at 30. I'm like, I'm not Buffett. And I didn't even adjust it for inflation. I think at the time, his million would have been like nine million. So I like, <laughs> I said, okay, take Buffett's million, cut it in half. Like, I think that's doable. And I didn't even make that, right? So I had these, well, I would say the goal wasn't super, super high, but it was it was decently high. And I still don't even make it to that, right? So I was like beating myself up, but it's okay. That's how life is, you know? Don't beat yourself up so much. Sometimes that happens. This is, it's a very natural feeling. And I think the reason that blog post did well and why I included it in the book is because a lot of people feel that way, right? You know, we have dreams about our future and they don't always come true and that's fine. You know, you can, you can kind of keep working at it, you know, because things can get better in the future. I'm like, I feel like I'm much better off than I was at 30, despite the fact it's only been, you know, a few years, right? So, yeah. Mindful spending is a big topic for you. How can people ensure that whatever spending they're doing aligns with their life goals and, and what makes them happy versus just spending to keep up with friends and neighbors? Yeah, I think this is probably one of the hardest questions to answer simply because like, as an individual, it's one of the hardest questions to answer because like, you have to know yourself. I mean, this is something that like, philosophers have been debating for centuries, like, you know, know thyself, right? Like, if you know what you really want out of life, then your finances become so much easier. If you know, like, you know what, I'm okay spending a lot of money in these areas, and I'm not okay with spending money in these areas, then that's really helpful. But a lot of people don't know. They think, oh, if I could just travel the world all the time, then I would be happy. And then maybe you do that for a few weeks and you, you kind of, it loses its luster. Then you realize, oh, maybe that's not what's going to make me happy, right? Or whatever it is. People have these idealized fantasies of what's going to make them happy with their spending. And a lot of people just don't know. And sometimes it takes trial and error to get there, but you got to kind of just figure that out. And so for me personally, like, I'm very okay spending a lot of money at restaurants, but like, I don't spend a ton on clothing. I don't have a car. Like there's a lot of things in my life where I'm like, I'm not going to spend a lot of money on a lot of these areas. But when I go to restaurants, I enjoy that. I like food. I would consider myself a foodie. I live in New York city. So this is like a great city for that. So like, I'm very aligned with where my spending is. And some would say my spending at restaurants is exorbitant and it probably is relative to most people, but that's what I like. That's my thing. Right. And so 
find your thing. If your thing's nice watches, that's fine. Do that. If your thing's fancy cars, do that. Just figure out what your thing is and, you know, spend it in a way that you like that aligns with your values and what you care about. Right. And so for me, it's experiences. So. One thing I like about the book is that it includes these sort of helpful rules of thumb for thinking about your money. And you talk about what you call the two times rule as a way Mm -hmm. to spend money guilt-free. Can you talk us through that? Yeah. So the two X rule is a, is a way to kind of like escape like any sort of spending guilt you might have. So let's say I'll give an example. Let's say I was going to go to a nice like sushi tasting and I was going to take a date there or something. And it's going to be like, you know, 200 bucks a person or something. That's very expensive for a dinner. So to say like, okay, if I want to do this nice thing, maybe I'm going to spend this $400, like I already budget for it. Let's say I'm going to spend this $400 at the same time. I'm going to take another $400 and I'm going to invest it in income producing assets of some sort of that stocks, bonds, whatever. I invest it in some way. Right. Or I can take that other $400 and you know, uh, donate it or something. There's a, there's a lot of things. So the two X rule is like, okay, if you're going to spend X dollars, save two X and then take, you know, half of that and invest it or donate it and take the other half and spend it. Right. So whether it's like, Oh, I need to buy a nice pair of dress shoes that are, you know, 200 bucks. And then I'm going to save 400 and then, you know, 200 goes in the market, 200 goes to the shoes, whatever. It's like, there's a bunch of different ways you can do this. And what's a splurge? Every person's different. For some people, a splurge is $100. For other people, it's going to be $10,000 or even $50,000. I don't know. Every person's different. Whatever you consider a splurge is a splurge. So this is a way where you can say, I'm not going to feel guilty about spending this money because I'm now, you know, taking that money and investing in my future or donating to a good cause, et cetera. I think another rule of thumb, useful rule of thumb that you have is something you've called the hourly wage test. A balance we're all trying to strike is money versus time. And I think you've noted that the hourly wage test is a way to approach whether something is worth your time or better Mm -hmm. off outsource. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So when I think about like, oh, should I do this activity or should I outsource it to someone else? I started thinking about like, okay, well, how much time is it going to take me to do this? And then on top of that, like, what else could I be doing? That's my opportunity cost of my time, right? So if like my opportunity cost is like, let's just say it's writing a blog post. And let's say I would, you know, from ads and affiliate deals, whatever, I make like $500 on a blog post. So, and it takes me 10 hours. So let's say my hourly rate is 50 bucks an hour. Let's say after tax, I'm making, you know, $35 an hour. So if that's my like after tax rate for that thing, $35 an hour, I'm saying like, okay, should I do my laundry? Or should I pay someone else $20 to do my laundry, right? And so in one of those obvious cases, like if it takes me, let's say, an hour to do laundry, but I only cost me 20 bucks to have someone else do it, I would rather just pay someone else because I you know, I can create $35 or I could have someone else do it for $20, right? You can see the the logic there. So that's why I just, I mean, plus I hate folding laundry, but that's a separate, that's a separate <laughs> discussion. So like um, I would pay someone just to fold the laundry, I could do the rest. Um, so that's the kind of thinking, like, is this something where I could just like, outsource and I would outsource it. So that's kind of why I have, you know, I like using laundry services because I just, in terms of my time, I could be writing a blog post, I'd be doing something else that's a little bit more productive. And I don't think about that every single moment of my life. You, if you start to do that, you're going to beat yourself up about everything you do. Like you can't watch a TV show because like, oh, I could be making more money, right? You don't want to get into that space. But if it's something you don't enjoy doing and you want someone else to do it, I think there's um, arguments to be made for something like that. One word that seems to come up a lot in your work, in the book, and in, on your blog is optionality, that money mm-hmm. buys us optionality. Can you discuss what that word means to you and, and why it's so important? Yeah, to me, I think optionality is just like having more choices. And more choices aren't always a good thing. I think there are cases where it's not. I mean, there's if anyone's read uh, Barry Schwartz, The Paradox of Choice, it's like, 
what they find is as you have too many choices, it's actually more difficult to make a decision. So I believe in optionality up to a point. But what money allows you to do, it gives you optionality in the sense of like, okay, I can, you know, maybe I can do this, I can do my own venture, I could do this, or I can take a job that maybe doesn't pay me as much, but I enjoy it more, right? There's all sorts of ways that money can help with optionality in terms of whether it's spending on the spending side, on the income side, with your career, with kind of lifestyle things, there's all sorts of, you know, ways optionality can be helpful. Obviously, at some point, like, I think too much optionality can be bad. So for example, I think a lot of people, this is a hot take I have, if most people you just gave them like $100 million, and they just never had to work again, I think there would be a decent number of people who would probably get depressed because they would have like no purpose in life. Now, those people that like already know, oh, if I had $100 million, I would do XYZ, they know they would probably be great with $100 million. But there's a lot of people out there that would probably lose their sense of purpose and it would be bad for them. So that's too much optionality, right? Like having, if you don't ever have to work again, that could be necessarily bad for some people's psychology. So I think it's thinking about like, you know, getting some optionalities that allows you to do a little bit more, but not so much that you're overwhelmed and can't make a decision, basically. You have a section in the book on buying a home versus renting. What are the key factors that people should keep in mind as they approach that decision? Yeah, so I think there's three big ones. The first one is, you know, how long are you going to be there? And my rule, I say, is roughly you got to be there like 10 years for it to make sense if you're going to own um, versus renting. That's one thing. The second thing is what's the stability of your you know, financial and personal life? If you're single now and you plan on buying a home, but you might have a family in a few years, then it's very likely you're going to have to sell that home and upgrade unless the home's already has a sufficient size to support a family of your desired size. So that's this next thing. It's like how stable is everything in your life, right? That matters a lot because I think if you don't have stability, it's really tough to take on a you know 30-year fixed lot of debt and making payments. And then you have instability, whether that's in your personal life or you know in your financial life. I think that matters a lot. And then lastly, can you afford it? Now, there's different metrics people use for affording it. I think you should be able to put down 20% down payment. I don't think that means you have to put down 20%, but you should be able to. There's a big distinction there because I think people that can put down 20% are probably decent at saving money and you know financially responsible enough. But I'm not saying that that means that the optimal choice is for you to put down 20%. You can put down less and you know I can understand why someone might want to put down less and just take up more debt if rates are low or... They just don't want to lock up so much money in an illiquid asset like real estate. That makes sense. So, but yeah, and the other way to look at affordability is like debt to income ratio. I think the qualified mortgage to have that is like, you know, 43% max debt to income ratio. So something like that. Obviously, there's different metrics you can use for that. I'm not sure what's the perfect metric, but let's just say 40%. So as long as the debt to income ratio, your debt payment per month is less than 40% of your gross income, that's probably a good, good thing. Um, but yeah, those are the three factors I would say. It's just like affordability, uh, stability in your life, and then how long you're going to be there are the, probably the most important things. Because I think almost everyone across the spectrum, like uh, especially as incomes go higher, like home ownership rates go up. So even people are like, oh, I'm going to rent for life. A lot of these people end up owning too because you know you lock up your your housing cost, right? You don't have to go to the free market every year and you know get the rent and pay the rent, pay the market rent every year, right? So I think there is something to that, especially if there's inflation in the, like right now inflation is 8%. People who bought homes in like 2019 are like, as long as they've you've seen their income grow with inflation, they're doing very well right now because you know inflation's high and their payment's not moving at all. But guess what? I'm a renter and my rent is moving with inflation. So I know the downsides of not owning. 
Yeah, there's been kind of this stampede effect in the housing market where it seems like there's scarcity. Uh, that's a mindset. And then with the threat of rising interest rates, I think you've got a lot of, you know, first time home buyers feeling some pressure to lock in a home purchase. Do you think that there's potentially risks to making decisions in this kind of environment where things feel a little bit frenetic? I mean, there's always risks to like making a decision anytime, right? Because you, you never know the future, right? At the end of the day, like, I don't think people should market time too much. I understand that there's, when you're buying a home, it's kind of like buying an individual stock in the sense that it, it's not a diversified portfolio. You have idiosyncratic, like individual risk, right? With that individual property or with an individual stock. So I understand with individual securities, like market timing matters a lot more than it does for, let's say, a diversified portfolio. So that's why I usually don't tell people to market time, but I kind of understand why they do for things like this. Like I have friends right now that uh, sold a place in Seattle and they're just waiting right now. They're just waiting, waiting, waiting. Like, I think this can't last and prices are going to come down and then I'll get something. I tell them like, that's true. That could happen. At the same time, prices could just go up a, a bit more and then just stay flat for a long time. And so you, you don't really know at the end of the day. So I think it's really tough to say, okay, I'll wait till the dust settles because there's always a reason to sell, right? I think, you know, one, one of my colleagues, Michael Batnick, he's always saying, you know, there are many reasons to sell. He has this great chart that shows the U.S. stock market over time, you know, up and to the right. And he puts a point like throughout on the chart of every single time that there's been something happening, a war or pandemic or whatever's happening in the world, there's always a reason to sell. There's always a reason to wait till later, you know? And so obviously sometimes those reasons are accurate, but a lot of the times, you know, the market keeps going up anyways, right? So I, I'm not necessarily saying that that's going to happen here with real estate, but it could happen, right? There's nothing stopping real estate prices from going higher, right? Unfortunately. So yeah, I mean, obviously they can't go up forever, like just rising at this rate at this pace forever. But the question of whether you should take that too much into account, I think you should probably shouldn't because no one knows the future. I want to turn to investing in markets. You've written a lot about dollar cost averaging versus lump sum investing. And I think you've concluded that getting the lump sum invested is usually the better course of action. But doesn't that whole discussion obscure the fact that most of us have no choice but the dollar cost average because our investable assets come in sort of dribs and drabs through our earnings? Yeah. So I think the issue here is more about definitions. It's a definitional issue. When we say dollar cost averaging, there's actually two definitions for dollar cost averaging, which is why this is so confusing. The first definition, which you referenced, which is like lump sum versus dollar cost averaging, that definition is when, let's say you sold a house and you have $100,000 in extra equity, right? You sold one house, bought another, and you have extra money, or you got an inheritance, or you sold your business, whatever. Let's say you have $100,000 to invest. You have two options. You can, or there's probably more than two, but basically, let's say there's two options. You can lump sum it, which is take that 100K and put it into, let's say, the stock market or 60-40 portfolio, right, today. Or you can take that $100,000 and slowly average, what I call averaging. I don't like saying dollar cost averaging there because I'll explain in a second. I only use that for the second definition. So, I like to say averaging. You take that hundred grand and you slowly go into the market over the next year, right? I call that averaging into the market. And in the book, I say averaging for that. The second definition of dollar cost averaging is actually the original. And I think the first time it's used in print or reference was Benjamin Graham saying, oh yeah, just buy over time your dollar cost averaging, right? So the one you're talking about, Jeff, with regards to our 401ks, putting money in every two weeks, that's what I call dollar cost averaging. But if you really think about it, relative to the first definition, you're really making these little lump sum payments like over time, right? You're getting these little lump sums from your, your check and you're putting them in, right? So really, if all this breaks down to like, just invest as soon as you have the money to invest, 
right? And so with your 401k, it's not like you're getting paid and then you're like, okay, I'm going to take 4% of my paycheck and I'm going to put it into the market over the next six weeks. Like, no, you put it in as soon as you get paid, right? So that's what's important. And so lump sum versus, you know, DCA or averaging, as I call it, the averaging method, that's really about investing as soon as you can. And when you're putting money in, in drips and drabs, as you say, over time, you really are putting it in as soon as possible, right? So you're doing the same thing. Those are consistent. But when I say dollar cost averaging, I'm referring to, you know, just buying over time and kind of lump summing or investing as often as possible. So I hope that kind of clears up the confusion there. It does. You've talked about the role of non-portfolio factors, such as the industry where someone works, as potentially being influential in terms of how they should invest their portfolios. Can you discuss that concept and perhaps share some examples of how human capital should influence financial capital? Of course, yeah. So I think this is a newer idea, and I think it's going to be something that's going to take off a lot more in the coming years, especially this is kind of gets into direct indexing, custom indexing stuff, which we can talk about. But basically, it's like, okay, if you work in the oil industry, and let's say you're you work for Exxon, and Exxon's giving equity, right? From a risk perspective, it probably makes sense for you to downweight oil and downweight your employer, because if something were to happen with the oil industry, you know, let's oil prices go negative and, you know, in March 2020 or whatever, like something like that you could be adversely affected. Like not only is your financial portfolio down, but like maybe your job's at risk now, right? So I think the key there is to kind of have a portfolio that has different risk characteristics than your income, right? And so you can even think of like your income. I I think this this is like CFA material. Like you can think of your income from your employer as like a bond payment that you're receiving, right? And so you work your labor and then you get paid a bond payment. So if you're getting this bond payment from Exxon every two weeks, do you want to own also the equity of Exxon or the equity of Exxon's competitors? Maybe not. Maybe you want to downweight that a little bit. And so I think in the future, we're going to be able to do that as technology gets better and better. You're going to be able to create these. Imagine creating an index of the S&P 500, but just downweight all the oil companies and upweight everything else as a result, right? So there's a lot of math there and, and ways you can do that. But that's kind of how I think about it. It's like, look at your human capital and skills and kind of where you're getting your income from and maybe adjust your investment portfolio so you're not over levered in, in a certain area. I think, for example, I am not doing this, unfortunately, because like, you know, I'm working financial services and like literally 97% of my assets are in financial securities of one or another. Like I don't own anything physical. Everything I own is like, you know, paper-based or, you know, stocks, bonds, et cetera, REITs. So it's interesting for me to say, like, I say this is going to be important and I probably should do that at some point. But like, I write about this stuff. I can't say, oh, go invest in stocks. And then optimally, like, it's probably better for me to like own more gold or something. Right. So I have to live like because of, you know, my what I'm doing with my life and I'm talking about my investments, I have to live that. And so I cannot be investing differently and inconsistent with what I'm telling other people to do. I do think, though, that kind of adjusting your your investments for your human capital makes sense. I just don't think it would be consistent for me to say, hey, go buy the S&P 500, and then I own very little S&P 500. So I think in my case, I'm doing something a little different than that, but but generally I recommend that. This year has been a bit unusual in that both stocks and bonds have fallen at the same time, which sort of bucks the conventional wisdom that high-quality bonds will diversify stock exposure. Given that, should investors be worried that stocks and bonds could become more closely correlated in the future? I'm not as worried about that. I think, I can't remember the exact number. I think it's something like negative 0.3. That's like the long-term correlation between stocks and bonds. So it's negative, which means when stocks go down, bonds generally go up, but it's not negative one. So it's not like every time stocks drop, bonds go up. It is negative and it's slightly negative. 
But because of that, that means there are going to be periods like this period now where stocks and bonds decline together. I mean, let's just say that bonds and stocks had zero correlation. That would just mean like stocks fall and like that doesn't, you have no idea what's going to happen to bonds, right? So the negative, like let's say 0.3 or whatever that estimate is, it says like, okay, generally bonds will help you out when stocks are falling, but that's not always true, right? And you have to really kind of, I mean, and it also changed over time, even during, you know, March 2020 during the COVID crash, there were days when stocks and bonds declined together. But for the most part, bonds kind of held their value and increased a little bit despite having some crash days. So I'm not as worried about that. Obviously, it's tough right now because, I mean, yields are coming back up. So bonds are now actually creating some income when they weren't really creating much before. But obviously, inflation's high as well. So it's tough to be a bond investor now. And I understand that, but I, I still own bonds. I still own some bonds, you know, and I think, you know, it's prudent for anyone who's you know trying to control risk to own some bonds. I know it's not great. It's not a great situation we're in right now, but we don't really have many other choices if you want to control some risk. One thing I wrestle with is the bonds versus cash decision. Like, what is the case for holding bonds versus just holding cash? I think you, you get some income, right? So let's say cash is paying zero, right? Bonds are, let's say, the 10-year right now is paying like close to 2.5%. So if inflation's 8%, your cash just earned a negative 8% real return. Your bonds, you know, earned a negative, what, 5 is that 5.5% real return? So you just lose less. That's basically it. So generally, that's it. You're going to lose less money over time by being in bonds over cash. That's it. And they're generally like, of course, there's still risk with bonds. That's not there in cash. So over very short time periods, if you know you're going to need the money, and I discussed this in the book, like if you're saving up for a big purchase or something, I recommend, you know, using cash, especially if you're like below three years for sure, use cash, but anything beyond that, you'll want to have some bonds. So another quandary is deciding whether and how much to invest X US. It's probably difficult to convince US investors to do so because performance has been much worse outside the US than it has been stateside, generally speaking. What's your thinking on how investors should approach that question, the U.S. versus non-U.S. question for their portfolios? Yeah, so I, I understand that, like, you know, since, let's say, 2010, the U.S. has basically crushed international markets, whether international or you're saying developed or emerging. It's done very well. But look at what happened from 2000 to 2010. It's the opposite story. So I'm not saying that that's going to happen again. I have no clue. Like, we can't know the future. But for me, it's like, having too much U.S. exposure and then something happens in the U.S., let's say U.S. underperforms international markets, it's going to hurt really bad as a U.S. investor. Because not only are you probably feeling the effects economically, like just in your job, but on top of that, your portfolio is getting hit. So the scenario now where if you're like, let's say you half of your equity exposure is to developed and emerging markets and half is to U.S., like, yeah, that's not great because you didn't make as much if you're just a U.S. investor. But at the same time, like in the flip scenario, you know, in the scenario where emerging or developed does really well and U.S. doesn't, you're now, you're much better off than the people who are all U.S. So, and I've heard arguments say, oh, you don't even need, to, you know, international stocks because, you know, U.S. companies are basically everywhere, right? Like, I've heard that before. But at the end of the day, like, I still think, like, it's prudent to have some international exposure. And I believe in it. And you don't have to. Remember, like, there's a lot of ways to get rich. I talk about this in the book. There's no right answer to this. I know people that are rich that just do real estate, like physical real estate. I know people that are rich that just do stocks. I know people that do that are rich that, you know, do REITs and all sorts of there's so many different ways you can kind of put together a portfolio that that works for you. And I don't think obsessing over the small details matters as much as people think. It's just about like, you know, 
own income producing assets and on average you should do well and you have to be diversified right you can't put all your money into russian stocks and hope for the best you know as long as you're diversified and you're just buying over time i think you'll probably be fine I wanted to ask about target date funds as a simplification tool for young investors. How do you feel about them? Uh, yeah, so for I don't get into this specific topic in the book, but the general idea is like it's fine. Like I have no problem with target date funds. I don't think it really matters that much, especially for younger investors. And you're saying, well, why would you say that, Nick? Because for a younger investor, and this is like what I talk about in the first chapter of the book, there's something called the save invest continuum, and it's basically like. When you're young and you have very few investable assets, your asset allocation does not matter. You're saying, well, why? How is that true? Let's say you have $1,000 to your name, right? Let's say your target day fund, let's say it's going to get it. Let's, I'm going to say 10% return. It's a little high, but I just want to make the math easy. So let's say you have $1,000 invested in your name. Your target day fund gets you 10% return. That's a $100 investment return in a year. If you're a young person out there, and let's say you have friends, you go out to a bar or something, you could easily spend $100 a night. Or let's say you spend 50 bucks a night and you do that twice. That's your entire investment returns gone from you going out two times in a year, right? So if you really think about it, like what's more important, like looking at your spending and like how you're saving money early on or your investment returns? And the answer for most young people, most of the time, it's going to be their savings and their income and their career. So like I would say just set some asset allocation that makes sense for you and then don't worry about it too much. And then as you get older and have a lot more money invested, then you need to focus more on how you're investing that money. Right, because once you have yeah, once you have a hundred thousand dollars, that's very different than when you have a thousand dollars invested. So I think that's the main thing I would say is like, oh, should I be in a target date or should I do this? Like I used to obsess over that stuff too. Should I have ten percent bonds, fifteen, five? Like it didn't matter. It ultimately didn't matter. I, I spent all this time. It's cool because like I was into it, but at the same time, like it didn't matter. I should have spent more time learning how to you know program in R or some other programming language or learning some other skill like than doing that. And that's something that's if I could go back, I would have done things a little differently. Not that I have like major regrets or anything, but just saying like it's one of those things where I realized I was not behaving optimally. And I think a lot of people obsess over it when they don't need to, especially young people, that is. At the same time, you think most individual investors should steer clear of individual stock investing, if I've got that right. Why is that? So there's there's two arguments for this. Um, the first one is the one that probably most of your listeners have already heard, which is like, Oh, you know, individual stock pickers, active managers, however, whatever you want to call them, they generally don't beat the market, especially after fees. So basically what that means is the message is if you're going to try and pick individual stocks, you're probably not going to outperform the S&P 500, right? And especially over multiple years. There's these uh, reports that come out, SPIVA reports, S-P-I-V-A. The SPIVA reports basically show like no matter which market you look at, like over a five-year period, like somewhere between 16, 80% of active managers, stock pickers can't beat their benchmarks, right, after fees. So it's like if they can't do it and they have teams of analysts and all these resources, what chance do you have? That's the traditional argument. And that's fine. I talk about that argument in the book, but it's not my main argument. The real argument for why I say people shouldn't pick individual stocks, like for the bulk of their holdings, right? If you want to pick individual stocks with 5% of your portfolio, small amount of money and do it, that's fine. You want to do it for fun, whatever, that's fine. I have no problem with that. I don't. I think that's prudent if you're doing that. I don't think it's that crazy or anything. So this is for people who are like, oh yeah, the bulk of my wealth is in individual stocks. My argument to them is what I call the existential argument, which is how do you know that you're good at picking stocks? Like, how do you actually know? Because with almost every endeavor in life, you can identify skill pretty quickly, right? Like if myself and LeBron James went onto the basketball court and you didn't know who LeBron James was and we started playing, it would be obvious within five minutes that I don't know what I'm doing. He does. I'm getting crushed, right? 
anyone could tell you that a basketball coach could look at that. Like even people that don't even know basketball could tell you that, right? Others can identify skill really easily. Same thing with like computer programming, right? If I went up against like the best computer programmer, you would know that this person understands computer programming better than I do or better than someone that doesn't know computer programming, right? You can identify skill easily with stock picking. That's not true. Like you and I can go pick stocks. And just because you did better does not mean you're a better stock picker. You could have gotten lucky, right? Or I could have gotten unlucky or vice versa. And so there was a study that basically found, I, I referenced in the book, um, and it was just like looking at like mutual funds and like, are there any actual stars? Are there people that are actually really good at doing this? And they found like, yeah, there's about 10% of people that like we can identify their skill. So let's just do this little thought experiment. Let's say 10%, we can identify their skill the top 10%, the bottom 10%, let's say we can also identify their skill, but they're bad, right? They're really, really bad. That means that, you know, we can identify the top 10, we can identify the bottom 10. That means the middle 80%, we can't identify. That means four out of five stock pickers have no idea if they're good. And like, how long are they going to have to do this game for, play this game of stock picking before they know? Uh, one year, three year, five year, you don't know. All you, get, all you have to do is get one really good pick and it could just, you know, be enough returns to like make you beat the market just from you got lucky you got one you got an amazon in 2000 right or 2003 or whatever you buy somewhere near the bottom you bought amazon and it just did so well that it didn't matter all the other picks you just got lucky right so that's the argument i'm going to give out it's like do you want to look at yourself in the mirror every day and not really know if you're adding value to something right because like i don't have that issue i think a lot of people don't have that issue like they know like okay when i do this it creates value because it does this thing right and i think it's really tough for people to realize like oh am i actually good at this and i think it's just i for me personally i would beat myself up a lot not knowing if i'm actually creating any value in something and so when I, when i tell people like hey don't pick individual stocks it's not for the performance and the money thing that's a great argument itself it's like you know are you going to be good at it and even if you are good what if you start to underperform uh, even all the best managers, Bayer did a study, they found all the best managers underperform at some point. So even you start to underperform, you're going to question like, oh, have I lost my touch? Or maybe is this normal, like a lull in performance, right? So you're going to beat yourself up. It's a psychological game. It's it's really, really tough to do that. And I think it's it's really tough mentally to kind of play that game. So that's kind of why I don't recommend it, because it's just, it's tough for a lot of people. You referenced that considerations around asset allocation for young investors is probably pretty overrated and maybe a misuse of time. Can you think of another completely overrated debate in the realm of personal finance or investing? Yeah, I think for me, and this is what I've written probably the most on is market timing. I think there's so much evidence, even just articles, not even articles I've written, I've just read other stuff from other people where like they do thought experiments. Like what if you had bought the lowest point in the year versus the highest point, right? Bought at the bottom versus the peak. How much of a difference does that make over 30 years? And they find it's like so it's like basically irrelevant, right? You keep doing that every year. More important thing is that you keep buying and that the market that you're buying or the investment you're investing is going up over time, right? And so most equity markets generally go up. Of course, there's exceptions like Japan, uh, Russia, Greece, you know, Spain from 73 to 83. Like I know all of them, right? I've spent so much time like studying all the failures. Like I have to know these. So like, yes, there are exceptions to this rule, but as long as, you know, investments are going up to the right, like market timing doesn't really matter that's completely overrated. Yet somehow people still obsess over it. Like it's no matter what, like you look at all the data, people still feel like they want to get a good price. Like they're like, I want to get the best possible price. And I get that, like we're bargain hunters, but at some point you have to be like, okay, this is silly. Like it's not going to matter when the market's 2X higher in like, you know, 10, 20, 30 years or whatever it is. How about the flip side? What's underrated? I know that you think maybe sort of the focus on Cutting spending is overrated, and the corollary to that is that maybe maximizing income is underrated. What else is underrated? Yeah, so I think another thing that's underrated is just like 
and I've kind of touched on this earlier in our conversation is like knowing yourself, knowing what you really want to do with your financial life. Like, why are you saving all this money? Why are you doing all this? And I think like that is the ultimate question. And it's not a financial question necessarily, but it affects your finances. And I think a lot of people end up just kind of going through the motions and they're saving all this money and they don't know why. And that's why even in the book, I one of the, the hot takes I have is like, you probably need to save less than you think because you end up having all these people who reach retirement you know, only one in six retirees based on this, the data I've seen are pulling down principal. That means five and six are just living off, you know, social security and their dividends if they have dividends. So like most people aren't even spending their money down. So it's like, why, what was the point of all of this? Right. You start to wonder, I'm not saying you have to spend all your money down. That's not saying that either. People, okay, I'll bequest, or I want to, you know, give more to my children. I get that at some point, but I think at some point you realize like, oh my gosh, I've ended up saved so much money. Like, why did I do this? Like, and there's gonna be people out there who ended up like working extra hard, maybe neglecting their families, possibly just to earn more money. And then at the end of the day, it's like, why? Like, why? That was not necessary, you know? So I'm just having people question that, just question like a lot of the premises we have in society and the kind of the messaging that's out there. And of course, I want people to raise their income, but at the same time, like, know why. Like, don't just raise your income just to raise your income. Like, if you're like, oh, I don't need to raise my income anymore, then don't. Like, you know, for example, here's something that I did recently is I run ads on my blog. I've since gotten rid of in-content ads on the blog because they're annoying. And like, yes, I'm going to lose a little bit of money from that. But I'm like, I can get 70% of my earnings and still keep people who are reading my work very happy. And it's like, I'm willing to take that because I don't, I don't need that extra. I'm not so desperate for like, oh my gosh, I need that extra money that like, I'm willing to like upset readers and possibly lose people who I really, I value people's time so much. And I, you know, I talk about that in the book, like I value people's time so much that I don't want to do that. Right. So like figuring out what, what do you really care about and what matters and what doesn't, that's what I would say to focus on. So maybe you can talk about your go-to reading items and podcasts each week. We'll assume it's a given that all of the Ritholtz related podcasts and blogs are mm-hmm. on your list, but what else? Yeah, so a lot of the stuff I do, I mostly read blogs or I'll read podcast transcripts. Um, and the reason for that is like, I'm just trying to be very efficient with my time. And I mostly do writing and I, I don't listen to many podcasts. I will here and there, like if there's like a guest I like, um, I'll follow them and I'll kind of see what they're on here and there. And the, the reason I do that, I think a lot of my philosophy is like, what is the highest quality information I can get out there? And if you think about like the amount of time put into writing generally is just so much higher than it is for anything else, any other medium, right? Like, let's say I write a blog post, it's a 1000 words, and it takes me 10 hours, you know, so I'm writing uh, 100 words per hour, right? I've easily in this podcast spoken more than, you know, 100 words, and maybe, a, you know, a couple minutes, right? So I'm not saying that those words aren't useful or helpful. But like a lot of this stuff, it's like, it's not going to be as, as refined and thought through as well as me sitting down and writing every single answer. Right. And I think that's so because of that, I think there's just higher quality information in writing across the board because people have to really, really think about everything. You know, it's easy to misspeak. It's very hard to like miswrite because you'll just, you'll know like, Oh, I didn't want to say that. Right. You'd fix it. So I think that's kind of the, the big thing there. Um, I'll give a shout out to one guy. He's, he's a new, uh, he's a, yeah, I like, cause I, I can tell, oh, I read Morgan, all these people that everyone knows. I want to just give a shout outs to like people who are kind of up and coming. So Kyla Scanlon, she's really good. So I read her stuff. Um, you can check her out. She's also on TikTok and a bunch of other stuff, but Kyla's good. And then Jack Rains, he's an up and coming blogger as well. So R-A-I-N-E-S, that's Rains. And then Scanlon is, I think, 
S-C-A-N-L-O-N, Kyla Scanlon. So I'd recommend those two. They're up and coming. They're young. They're like, they're doing very well. They're crushing it. So I'd recommend if you guys are like into that type of stuff, check out their content. See if, if you'd like that. What do you do to combat complacency in your work and regain energy for it, I suppose? You can just read a lot. I think that helps. I mean, you always have to like find new ideas, find out people are thinking about ideas. I think, yeah, it's like, how do you write once a week for five years and do that? Like, don't you run out of ideas? And it's like, yeah, there are times where I'm like, well, what should I write about? You know, and I have to just think about different things. But the more information you consume and like really high quality information, it's just naturally going to like create sparks, right? Kind of think of like, you can imagine, you know, like you're building a fire what you're doing is you're taking all this like potential energy, which is like information, right? That you've read over the years. These are like the wood you're putting it there. And then once you read something, you create a spark and then that fire starts right over that idea. So that's kind of what I do. I try just to read a lot of stuff, you know, and I'm reading all over, all over the place. You know, it's not always financial stuff. It could be like non-financial things as well, just biology or status or what have you. But I think reading is the key to that. At least for me, every person is different. Some like podcasts because you can sit back and just enjoy. And a lot of people that have been on podcasts have thought about these ideas a lot too. So I think there are efficient ways of using those as well. I just, I happen to be a visual learner. So I just have to like read almost everything. Well, Nick, this has been such an illuminating conversation. We really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to be with us today. Of course. Thank you both for having me on, uh, Christine and Jeff. Really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on The Long View. If you could, please take a moment to subscribe to and rate the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Christine underscore Benz. And at S-Youth1, which is S-Y-O-U-T-H and the number one. George Cassidy is our engineer for the podcast, and Carrie Gretchik produces the show notes each week. Finally, we'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or a guest idea, please email us at morningstar.com. Until next time, thanks for joining us. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analyses, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decisions.